Good morning, guys. Uh, Mike asked me to go ahead and read um, Isaiah chapter 62, and it's going to be verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 says, Go out, go out through the city gates, prepare a way for the people, build it up, build up the highway, clear away the stones, raise a banner for the peoples. Look, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, say to daughter Zion, Look, your salvation is coming. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. And they will be called the holy people, the Lord's redeemed, and you will be called cared for, a city not deserted. Thanks, Christian. Good morning again, guys. Oh, they rallied. (laughs) Sorry about that, Christian. Better luck next time. If you would turn with me this morning to um, the Gospel of John, chapter 12. A couple quick things as you're turning to John 12, um, not 1 John, but the Gospel of John. Um, And you're probably, if you're like, I'm going to 1 John, there is not 12 chapters here. Ah, that's your clue. Okay, so John chapter 12 is where we'll be. But before we get there, um, something really cool is being celebrated this week. In fact, it's going to be this coming Tuesday. Um, It is the 119th anniversary of the first Sunday that First Baptist Church met in Coeur d'Alene. Isn't that cool? Isn't God faithful? 119 years this Tuesday. Isn't that awesome? So that was back in 1903. They actually had their first gathering at, it used to be the Opera House down on 4th and Sherman. Um, It then became a coffee shop and it still is a coffee shop. It's where Vault is today. Um, I believe, if I have my history right, I think it's where Vault is. Um, but you guys, isn't it cool? 119 years that First Baptist has been in Coeur d'Alene. They moved to this location a little while after that. But here we are celebrating a Sunday morning service with them. And we're just part of this continuing faithfulness of God in our community. Isn't that awesome? So cool. I love it. I love it. So I wanted to share that with you guys this morning. And one more thing, those cards that are on the pews this morning that have the Easter information, I know those would look really good on your refrigerator, but please don't. Please don't. If you need to remember uh, what what time the Easter service is and where it is, just go to transformcda.com and you can see it there. Those are for you to give out. And we've got stacks of them on that black table just as you go out the doors on the left-hand side. We have stacks of those cards. Join us. Like a handful of them and hand them out to people this week. Share them with people. Invite them to come join. BJ was talking on Sundays that you can get people who don't know the Lord to come to church with you, especially if it's in a park. It feels safe but it's not. So here's here. I'm really excited about it. Like, I mean, we're, we're going to have the opportunity to see people get saved and get baptized on Sunday next week. Amen. So let's invite people. Let's invite people. I'll be praying this week as the four pastors are going to be, I'm one of those guys are going to be gathering and we're going to be putting together the final details. I'll be praying for pastor Jared from all of life as he prepares to teach and preach the word of God next Sunday. So I'm excited. I cannot wait to get outdoors. It may be a bit chilly, but it'll be all right. We're, we're sturdy people, aren't we? We got down jackets. John chapter 12 is where we're going to focus our time this morning. Can we pray together? Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord, that we get to be a part for however long you say so and in whatever way that you have already decided that we get to be a part of the history of this church in this city. Lord, as Transform has been so blessed by the First Baptist community, they've, they've brought us in here, they've given us a home. Lord, I pray that we would continue to be faithful to preach your word. 
God to be faithful to reach out and minister to the needs of the community as we care for one another here in the body. Lord, I pray that this place would be known for being a house of worship. Lord, that it would be known as a place where people can receive the good news, the gospel, and that it would also be a teaching center where we raise up the next generation of disciples to go to all nations and preach your truth. Lord, that begins right here. So, Lord, thank you for calling us to this place. As we look at your word, Lord, as we are convicted and called to see, Jesus, what you have for us to see here this morning, we submit to you. We submit to your teaching and your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would powerfully work within us. Lord, that in our weakness, you would be strong. In our frailty, you would shown to be, be shown, Lord, to be powerful and mighty and sovereign. Thank you for this place, these people, Lord. What a wonderful thing that we get to do, to be together, to share in your word together. Minister to all of us, we ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. As we enter our observance of Holy Week, today being Palm Sunday, we're going to focus in on something that you're probably familiar with, and that's Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And as we prepare to remember this triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem as king, and as we remember his crucifixion and death on Friday, and as we celebrate his resurrection one week from today, we're given a blessed opportunity to reflect and to meditate and to remember all that Jesus did. There is a tendency in myself, and I I don't know if this speaks to you or what way it will speak to you, but there's a tendency in myself to just kind of coast through this week. We kind of know what we're going to talk about. We know the subject matter. And then there's another part of me that wants to just throw everything off the rails and be like, let's just look at it from a totally different perspective. And and I think that taking an extreme approach to Holy Week can divert our attention from where it ought to be. And that's completely and solely focused on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That we need to remember and take a focused look at Jesus and ask for him to take us to a greater depth of understanding of who he is, what he has done, and how he has changed our lives. We want spiritual fruit to be born from us because, because we faced the reality of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because we have looked at the reality of that and how that impacts our lives. Recognizing that everything begins with him. And everything will conclude with him as Jesus testifies of himself to John in Revelation chapter 1. Halfway through verse 17 says, don't be afraid as he speaks to John. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus said, I'm in charge. I'm in control. Jesus is not only the way, the truth, and the life, as John 14, 6 teaches us, but he holds the keys to death and Hades. How many people feel like they hold their destiny in their own hands, like they get to decide? I say they. How many of us? We. How many of us actually believe that we hold the keys to our own destiny, or if we recognize the truth, we don't live that way? We don't actually submit ourselves to it. Jesus was a man who understood what it was like to walk in our shoes. He was not only the way, the truth, and the life and holds the keys to death and hell, but Jesus was a man who understood what it was like to face death and grief. He understood what it was like to feel temptation, to know what that draw feels like. Indeed, he experienced all that we have in this life. Hebrews 4.15 teaches us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, 
yet without sin. Ah, there's the difference. There's the difference for us. Jesus was tempted in every way. Now think about how that ministers to us when we feel isolated and alone. When we feel like people don't understand what we're going through. Jesus gets you. He understands what you're going through. You don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. He can sympathize and he can save because he went through all of it without sin. And because he can sympathize with us, we know that he bears a true witness when he says in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Jesus calls us to courage because of what he did. Because of what he accomplished. And so when we come to a time like this on Palm Sunday, as we look at Jesus, I want to live my life in a way that looks just like him. Because if he is the one who accomplished all these things and honored the Father through his life, that's who I want to be. That's what I'm desiring to be, and that's what he's growing us to be. Indeed, we are being sanctified into that place throughout our lives as believers. We ought to be maturing and sanctified to become more and more like Jesus, bearing his image. Indeed, those who are in Christ are not only being sanctified, but we're told in Scripture that we can have peace. We can have peace in the midst of a world that contemplates life, death, and resurrection, or life after death, in the way that the world would understand it. We talk about resurrection because we anticipate that as believers. Well, the world anticipates something after death. Something's going to happen. Some people are like, ah, nothing's going to happen. Just poof, gone. I don't know that anyone actually believes that in their core as much as it's a coping mechanism to not face the truth, to not face the reality that something is coming for all of us after this fleshly life ends. Jesus understood all the struggles of being a human being, of being like us. So in the matter of handling serious questions about life and death and resurrection, we start with Jesus. We start with Christ You guys, it all began with him. It's all going to end with him. Our view of Palm Sunday coming from John chapter 12, we'll pick up in verse 9. If you have your Bible open, I encourage you to do that. I want to remind you that in John chapter 11, after purposely delaying to come to Bethany until Lazarus had died of his illness, Jesus comes and four days after Lazarus had died, Jesus raises him to life again. One of my favorite passages of scripture is John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is is all about this final miracle of Jesus's um, incarnation as he raises Lazarus from the dead. It's a powerful chapter and it's amazing to me. And and when I walked uh, the last group that I walked through John chapter 11, it was fun because I said, you realize that Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. Like, oh, he's always good. He always cares. He always knows. And sometimes he lets you die so that he can be glorified. So that the focus and the attention of our hearts and our minds would be on him and his ability and not on our own. Jesus allowed Lazarus to die because there was something greater that he needed to do. He raises Lazarus to life again in John chapter 11. And then, following that final sign, Jesus is then anointed by Mary. We're not going to go through that that text this morning, but it's very important and very powerful to look at in our study leading up to Palm Sunday. 
Because it's a beautiful picture of humility and devotion to Jesus and of sacrifice to Christ. This sacrificing of something very precious in honor and glory to Jesus. And, and it brings these questions to our mind as we read about Mary's washing of Jesus' feet. How she broke that box of, 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 of perfume that would have been so expensive, so valuable. It's like bringing your greatest possession before Jesus and shattering it at his feet and saying, you're all that matters to me. You're all that is beautiful to me. You're the only treasure that I care for, that I long for, that I need in my life. Jesus now prepares at this point to enter Jerusalem. But before we get to Palm Sunday, we're still not there. We're told this in John 12, verses 9 through 11. Let's read the text. We'll take it in, in little bits as we go through it this morning. John 12, 9 reads this way. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. Talking about Bethany, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one who had, he had raised uh, from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Did you catch that last statement? I'll read it again. The chief priests had, had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Isn't that a revelation of what they're all about? No one else is, they can't follow you. I'd rather them die than follow you. Isn't that a funny statement? We, used to, we think of it in this context like, I'd rather die than do that. It's like, I'd rather them die than follow you. That's pretty selfish. Such hostility toward a man who is giving life, Jesus, the response of the chief priests is not only to plot the death of Jesus, but to find a way to re-kill Lazarus. Lazarus didn't stay dead. We need to kill him again. How ironic. He's still with Jesus, by the way. Isn't it funny how delusional some people can be about the power of God? About the power of Christ? You know Lazarus is hanging out with Jesus. Let's re-kill him. Let's put him down. We can't have this evidence of, of, of what this man can do. It's amazing to me. Think of the stark contrast of their attitude. This is a great comparison. Compare, compare the attitude of the Pharisees to John the Baptist. To the attitude and manner of John the Baptist. People were deserting the religious leaders and following Jesus. Their response, kill the reason why it's happening. Then we have John the Baptist. Here's how he responded in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 25, to disciples going after Jesus and leaving him. John the Baptist, who was a man of God. Then a dispute, it says in John 3.25, arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, that would be Jesus, and who is with you across the Jordan is baptizing. Everyone is going to him. They're going to Jesus. Right? This is the desertion of disciples. Think about chapter 12 here, verse 11, to Christ, away from men who lead. John responds in verse 27. No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete, he says. One of the best verses in the gospel of John because of the heart that's behind it, this is the heart that we want as well. He must increase, but I must decrease. How much did John believe that? It cost him his head. 
Seriously. It cost him his head. How much do you believe it? How much do I believe it? How much do we believe that Christ must increase? How much do we really want to see that happen? Are we willing to lose our head over it? And I'm not talking about going crazy in traffic, right? Are you ready to lay your life down so that he can increase and we can decrease? It's not about us. It's not about building something up that makes you look great. It's not about us presenting ourselves to be something that we're not. We are men and women who are following the leadership and the call of our Savior, Jesus. It's all about him. He must increase. And as the people came and saw the sign of the Messiah, Lazarus being raised from the dead, they were believing in Jesus. And John the Baptist says, that's how it should be. They need to be going after Christ. They need to follow him. But the Pharisees, this robbed them of their followers. And what does it wound when you lose your fan club? It wounds your pride. It hits you right in the old pride bone, right? You guys, John eleven forty seven 47 makes it clear that the signs Jesus had done were irrefutable. They couldn't deny them. It's hard to deny a guy walking out of a tomb. He was what you would call in, 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 you know, ancient Jewish slang, according to Mike, dead. Good and dead. He was good and dead. Four days. Remember even his sister who wanted to see him alive. Don't roll the stone away. He stinketh. Right? Sorry, I just reverted back to my old King James. Don't roll it away. He stinketh. Jesus is like, what what did I Roll the stone away. Right? Lazarus comes out. It was so irrefutable, you couldn't deny it. The chief priests and scribes, they couldn't argue against it. They refused to put their trust in him. And so what's their next step? I don't want him to do this. I can't stop it from happening. Kill him. Make him stop. Where does that kind of animosity come from? We'll talk about it in a minute. It not only led them to plot the death of Christ himself, but now Lazarus is in their crosshairs as well. It wouldn't be enough for them to be satisfied with killing Jesus. You see, the evidence of his power is too clearly visible by looking at Lazarus. The evidence of Jesus' power is so visible in this man whose life was changed by him. Are you catching this? How visible is the work of God in us? Church, this is the kind of association with Jesus that we want. My prayer, and you're like, whoa, Mike, please don't pray that people want to kill me. My prayer is that we would be guilty of this kind of association, that the workmanship of the Lord would be so evident upon us that if they wish to do him harm, they have to include us. They have to, because we are living, breathing, walking evidence of the work of Jesus, that it is undeniable. Now think about that word, undeniable. Do we belong to Christ in that way? That it is undeniable that we belong to him. That people are like, if we want to erase the name of Jesus from this world, by the way, they can't. But if they attempt to, they'd have to include you. They'd have to include me. I hope it's, it's true for all of us that they would. That if they wanted to end the name of Jesus in this world, that I would automatically be thought of. But we got to get rid of Mike too. You're excited about this. Yes, I am. I want to be associated in that kind of way. We are living, breathing evidence that Jesus can bring the dead back to life. Amen? You who were dead in your trespasses and sin, 
he made alive through Christ. We were dead. Everyone around us knew it. We stunk, just like Lazarus, just in different ways. Charles Spurgeon said it really well. When men hate Christ, they also hate those whom he has blessed and will go to any lengths in seeking to silence their testimony. I know that some of us who have grown up in the church since we were young, we don't feel like we have this great, powerful testimony. You know, I got, I got saved in Sunday school. You know, a teacher talked about Jesus. I went home and I wanted to receive Jesus. And I did it 48 times that year to make sure I was good and saved. No way I'm going to hell. It's funny because I, I realized that in, as I got into my later teen years, that's really where I, I felt that call of the Lord and I started responding to him. But I know that he saved me when I gave my life to him when I was young. But some of us look at that and we're like, ah, oh, my testimony stinks. It's, I mean, I just, I've just been in the church. I haven't like, I didn't, I was never addicted to crack. I didn't do all these other things, you know, I, I, and we laugh, but it's true as if that would be a better road. But what's amazing is that God can save us from all different backgrounds, from all different tribes, all different nationalities. He can save us from all corners of the world through the same transformative truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to the Father except through him. And that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we call upon the name of Jesus, there is no other name that has been given to men that is under heaven by which we must be saved besides his. Amen? That is the truth. And he can save us from all corners of the world. And that's how he's saving people now. So your testimony is powerful. No matter where you came from, no matter what brought you here, your testimony matters. And may it be the case for us that if men hate Jesus, that they have to silence our testimony in order to accomplish what they desire. By the way, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's only going to happen if he lets it happen. I think of these great examples in scripture where these guys stood up for the Lord. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Heat the furnace seven times hotter. The guards died. They're standing there chilling. Oh, hey, Lord. Guys, think about this. If he doesn't want you dead, you're not going. You're like, but what if he wants me dead? <gasps> Glory. For now we see through a mirror dimly and then I get to see him face to face. The Lord wants to bring me home. I cannot wait. I can't wait. That was really high pitch. (laughs) (laughs) Continuing in John 12. That's just setting it up. Verse 12, the next day. Kind of gives you the background. Lazarus, all that's happening. Think about that context of this situation. John 12, 12, the next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. It's been prophesied before. A pretty powerful case is made that this is the exact day that was predicted in in the book of Daniel, that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem. Pretty compelling argument for that as well. I really enjoy doing those types of studies. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that one year a census was taken 
of the number of lambs slain for Passover, the figure was 256,500 for Passover. It's a lot of lambs. In other words, with numbers that large, that's 256 plus thousand. The number was so large, lambs were literally being driven up to Jerusalem throughout the entire day the week prior. In fact, it's very likely that when Jesus entered the city, he must have done so surrounded by lambs. It was very likely this being a commonly used road to go to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. If you've ever seen the region, you're descending the Mount of Olives, going towards the west, coming down, and you cross over the Kidron Valley and you come up to the gate, they would be driving lambs that direction. It's very likely that as Jesus was entering or coming down this Palm Sunday road, as we would call it, I've walked it, it's beautiful. As he was coming down that road that there were lambs all around him and people shouting Hosanna. Can't help but think of what John the Baptist said in the same gospel of John in chapter 1 verse 29. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an image. Of all the lambs that were driven to Jerusalem to be sacrificed that Passover, the Lamb of God was coming. He was led by the Holy Spirit to be our atoning sacrifice. And as we're told in Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 14, this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, Jesus was coming to offer the final sacrifice. That's what we'll celebrate this Friday. Soberly, confessing and repenting of our sin because we recognize that our sin sent him there. What lay ahead of him in the coming days was abuse and slaughter. And yet what a scene this is. Just a few days prior as he enters Jerusalem in a manner befit a king. Well, at least the people were acting that way. Our Savior was being praised for who he actually is by the people prior to his crucifixion and death. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Dating back to the Maccabees, uh, palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. The crowd is looking for a political leader. Don't misread the text. When they're saying Hosanna, when they're bringing these palm branches out, we're like, oh, they see that he's the Messiah. How did, they, how did they have such a turn from this Palm Sunday to, to screaming, crucify him? Because they were praising him through the verbiage and the language of nationalism, political focus, saying this is the man who will remove Rome. This is the one who's going to be king. He's going to kick Rome out. Our Savior has come. What kind of a Savior are you looking for? That's the question that comes to mind. They aren't looking for a spiritual Savior. They're looking for the national political leader. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to us, church, as what we wish him to be. Can I say that again? Jesus does not reveal himself to us as what we wish him to be. Jesus reveals himself to us as he is because that's what we need most. Jesus doesn't come to us and and make us happy with his 12-step plan for success and for conquering. 
He comes to you and says, if any man or woman would come after me, here's the plan. It's a three-step plan. You're going to love it. The first step, it's the easiest one of them all. Deny yourself. Right? It's a wonderful plan. You're like, I hate this plan. Nah, your flesh does. Absolutely. Step one, deny yourself. Okay, I'm working on it. I'm ready to go. What's, ah, what's step two? Think about it from the Roman mindset. Jesus says, take up your cross. We hear that and we think of Jesus. People in that time heard that. They thought of torturous death, difficulty, suffering. And we're like, ah, yeah, really was not signing up for pain. I was told that all my problems would go away. You have been misinformed. I'm sorry. Jesus doesn't present himself to us as we wish or want him to be. He presents himself to us as who we need most. And he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Why? Because he is worthy. Because he created you. And because God is going to complete you at the day of his return. We are on a road to redemption. A lot of times we're more focused on the road than we are the result. A lot of times we're basing our obedience on what we're seeing and what we're going through than what he has said will be in the end. Church, we need to refocus, broaden your gaze. Don't lose the forest for the trees. The crowd is looking for one particular thing. They shout Hosanna, which means save now. They recite a messianic psalm from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed from the house of the Lord. We bless you. They're crying out this, this save us now. But I want to encourage you guys as a church, we come to the Lord and we say, save us in the sense that he saves us from our sin. We don't come to the Lord saying, save me from my circumstances. Remove me from this trial. How many times do you see the early church cry out to the Lord and say, give us the strength to stand in the midst, not be free of it. To stand in the midst of the struggle. I think of Acts chapter 4. The first real persecution of the church has started after the ascension of Christ. And they said, Lord, give us the ability to continue, not free us. Why? Because they believed it when Jesus said it, that it was going to be hard. That if they were going to persecute him, that they themselves would be persecuted. They associated, they believed him. Isn't it crazy when people actually believe what the Bible says? They do all kinds of radical stuff. Those are the kind of people we want to be. Jesus in verse 14 says he finds a young donkey and sits on it just as it's written don't be afraid daughter zion look your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt jesus is coming but he's coming his way the way that he planned to come we know from the other gospels that he arranged for this donkey to be ready for him ahead of time and this reveals two powerful things for us one he's fulfilling the prophecy of zechariah 9 9 that's quoted here in verse 15 daughter zion your king is coming He's riding on a donkey's colt. He had planned for this because he knew this was the will of God. This was prophesied. And he was purposefully revealing his heart. What do we learn about a king, the true king, who rides into town on a donkey? If you were, if you were a Roman conqueror, what would you ride in on? War horse. Biggest horse you could find. Power. Right? 
A conqueror would ride into town on a war horse, but Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday on a donkey like a priest or even a merchant. Humble, lowly, meek. It's the heart of Christ. It was a declaration of peace. Jesus didn't ride in crying out, I'm here to conquer. Jesus rode in declaring peace through the sacrifice of his own body on the cross. He was coming to give peace to us. Jesus revealed himself to his own people as their savior and one who brings peace. Merrill Tenney said it well. He said he didn't come as a conqueror, but as a messenger of peace. He rode on a donkey, not the steed of royalty, but that of a commoner. On a business trip. I don't know how you view Jesus. I don't know how you think about him in the ancient context of when he lived. But if you were walking through a crowd, I don't know that he would be glowing as he passed you. Like, I do believe that was God. Right? He was a commoner. Doesn't that, doesn't that impact? impact us a little bit that jesus was like us that jesus was one of us he was fully god but he was so fully man that you could you could miss him you could miss and not notice him there's something about that that just grabs my attention because so often the one that we follow is the most powerful the one who looks the most together the one who's sending out all the signs of of strength and leadership. He has the deepest voice in the room and the loudest microphone. You're like, Mike, <laughs> follow Jesus. <laughs> right? You guys, w- w- we need to adopt that humble attitude as well. We need to have that humility as well. If that's how Jesus humbled himself, Philippians 2 is so clear. Look at the way that he humbled himself. How ought we to live? Mimic him. Stay low. He was gentle and lowly of heart. He invites us to come to him. And he says, I get what you're going through. It doesn't excuse sin. In fact, it brings you to him for cleansing. For fresh dress. Verse 16 continues. His disciples. This is what I love about the gospel of John. If you guys have heard me talk about the gospel of John, you know that this has always impacted me when I read this. I love that John gives us his commentary. If you want to read one of the Gospels that feels like John is commentating, like that the writer is commentating through it, John's your guy because he's always like, his disciples didn't understand these things at first. By the way, John's one of the disciples. He's like, didn't know what was happening. I love that. It's honest. How many times do you guys like, like hear someone teach or, or, or share in a way that feels so self-righteous like they know everything? I love it. John's like, did not have a clue what was happening. You're like, John, wait, I... However, he says, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. He's like, we remembered after he rose. We remembered these moments. Then we were maybe caught up in the moment. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Now we know why John made it so clear how impactful the resurrection of Lazarus was, because this crowd is buzzing and motivated by what Jesus has done at the tomb of Lazarus. 
Lazarus is this walking evident piece of the power of Christ throughout his ministry. And they're like, this guy's bringing people back from the dead. He can handle Rome. Jesus says, I brought Lazarus back from the dead. I can do it for myself. Right? This is the power of Christ. It's not the way that people see it. It's who he is. It's what he desires to do. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, verse 19, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is madness. John offers his commentary explaining why they were clueless while it was happening. But when Jesus rose from the dead, they remembered all that they had done on this day, undoubtedly bringing them further illumination scripturally and joy. Church, even if we don't get it now, we need to continue to press into our walk with the Lord because maybe what you're going through right now isn't making a lot of sense. Maybe what you're going through in your life right now doesn't make a lot of sense. You're you're having a hard time connecting the dots. Continue walking with Jesus. He will show you. He will show you what it was for. You guys, so many times, I've had no clue why the Lord was allowing me to go through what I was going through. And now I look back at those times and I'm like, wow, if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't be here or there. Some things, I still don't know. And you know what? I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Because he's higher than I am. He sees things differently than I do. I have to trust him. That's where faith comes into play. But you guys, in so many circumstances, we can look back and see that Jesus was doing something in our lives, that the spirit was leading us. We couldn't see it in the moment, but we can see it in hindsight. Use those times to praise him and worship him and thank him for his faithfulness, even though we were pretty clueless. The crowd's response to Jesus was fueled by their excitement about what he had done for Lazarus. If Jesus could bring people back from the dead, then he could be the king that would break the yoke of Caesar for once and for all. As the eyewitness testify of what Jesus had done, the crowds gather with excitement, thinking that this was going to be their moment. But this was the revelation of the Messiah that they needed, not the one they wanted. This is the revelation of the Messiah that they had to have, but they didn't care to have. The Pharisees despair as they stated back in chapter 11, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They echo that here. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. It's interesting as you connect those dots. They're like, this is what we're concerned about. Palm Sunday was this day like, and it's happening. Fantastic. Right? Obviously, the everyone has gone after him is an overstatement because they're not. But in the spiritual sense, this is in the case with Caiaphas's statement about it being better that one man die than the whole nation perish. Here there's some hint of the ability of Jesus to draw all men to himself. The ability of Christ to draw those to himself who look at him and recognize and long for Jesus and want him. Morris said it this way, they are concerned that a few Judeans were being influenced, but their words expressed John's conviction that he was conquering the world. John 16, 33. Take heart, I've overcome the world, Jesus says. He'll say that in a little while. Hasn't happened quite yet at this point of the story. While Matthew and Mark's account transition from this point to Jesus cleansing the temple, John's account will move to Greeks seeking Jesus. Luke's account reveals something else that happens right here, and this is what I'd like to close with this morning. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. When he drew near and saw the city, 
He wept. By the way, that means sobbed over it, saying, Would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. But they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This should have been a day of victory as the word of the prophets was fulfilled right before the people's eyes and rather than understanding the day of their visitation, they're blinded because they're looking for Jesus to be something they want and not what they need. Church, my concern for us as a church body is that we are made aware by the Holy Spirit on a continual basis of what the Lord desires to do in and through us. We can look around us a lot of times. We can be influenced by what other people are doing. Well, this church is having great success over here. We need to do that. You know, or this is what the Lord's doing in this region. We need to try and grab that and make it work here. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be looking at what God's doing, giving him glory and maybe learning from that. But here's the problem. We need to know what the Holy Spirit is doing in us and through us right here, right now. We need to know what God has called us to do here. And it cannot be selfishly motivated. It cannot be motivated by the desire to gather people to ourselves as the Pharisees want, but so that we can train up a generation, minister to a generation from the older saints in our church to the younger saints in our church to equip them and disciple them to go and do ministry. We can't get focused on keeping people. We need to be focused on growing people. We need to be focused on maturing believers. And you know what? If they all leave, I must decrease and he must increase. If they all rise up and leave and be like, you got to keep people in your church. No, I don't. I don't. If God has called you to be here, welcome home. If God is calling you out, how can we help? You guys, it's not about keeping people. It's about growing them. Sending them to the ends of the earth or sending them to the ends of Sherman. Whatever it is. Wherever God's calling, you're like, oh, don't send me to East Sherman. No. (laughs) Locals are all like, yeah. You guys. Far reaches of Spokane. Whoa. You guys. We need to stay in tune with what the Lord's doing in us and through us. Not because we're the only ones that matter. Obviously, we love to celebrate with other churches in our area. That's why we're gathering with three other churches on Easter. We love the unity of the body. But what God has called us to do here is be faithful, to be obedient, to be growing and encouraging each other, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. And I pray that we won't miss what he wants to do in and through us, that we won't miss the opportunity that he's been giving us because It's so sad to see Jesus weep over Jerusalem. He says, you don't even know the time of your visitation. You don't even realize what I'm here to do. You're not embracing me. You're embracing what you want me to be. And that's why they'll yell, crucify him. It's why they'll condemn him. You're not what we wanted. Put him on a cross. Church, let's receive Jesus for who he is, as he is. He comes not riding on the war horse, but on a donkey. Humble, lowly, 
And I pray that throughout this week that we would be able to embrace on Friday evening at 6 o'clock a moment of lament and grief over sin and brokenness in our world, that we could pray together and weep together and confess sin and repent because we recognize that what Jesus came to do was bear our sin and shame. And the way that he did it was so powerfully demonstrative of his care and his love for us that that ought to bring us some sobriety and some brokenness. And you know what, Sunday? We're going to worship. We're going to celebrate and we're going to get excited because our king rose from the dead. But Friday came first. Rejection came first. And we need to remember it. Lord, as we think of your entry, your triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we are reminded, uh, Jesus, of not just your humility, but Lord, we're reminded of a nation that wasn't prepared to receive you. And Lord, we don't want to be a people that doesn't receive what you're doing in our lives. Jesus, we've received you as our Savior, but, but we don't even want to be in this place of confusion. We're your body. You've saved us from our sin. We want to be in sync with you. Lord, if it's possible, would you give us understanding of what you're doing in us now? Sometimes you keep us in the dark. Lord, that's your prerogative. We trust you. But Lord, if we're in the dark because we're not paying attention, Lord, would you awaken us to what you're doing in your cause and, and what you desire to do through the ministry here in this church? As we celebrate this week, Jesus, as we celebrate um, you, Lord, part of that celebration brings us to a, a place of remembrance and mourning. We thank you, Lord, that we don't weep and we don't lament as those who are without hope, that we can do it as people who have hope because of what you have done, what you accomplished. But Lord, that we would not speed up the process, but really appreciate it. And so as we worship you, Lord, as we think of you, as we sing your praise, would you be glorified in this place as we take time to sing your praise and to worship. We set our eyes on you, Lord, and and we even cry out, Lord, and I, I pray that this would be in sincerity from all of our hearts, Hosanna. Lord, save us. Save us from our complacency. Save us from our lethargy. Jesus, reveal sin in our lives and in our hearts even now. As we confess those things to you, Lord, there may be some in this room that are just very aware of sin that they're in right now. God, I pray that your spirit would press upon them to release that. To lay aside the weight and the sin that's clinging so that they can run with endurance. You're calling us forward. And so Jesus, do that work in our hearts. Even now we ask spirit, minister and work.